0: And welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by The Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at The Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today.
1: Amen. Good singing, everybody. If you've got your Bible, let's see them. Hold them up there. Nothing like bringing a copy of the Word of God into the house of the Lord to hear a message from God's man as he preaches the Word. And, you know, just so wonderful to be together and sitting under the Word. And what God does is He takes the Word preached to all of us corporately, and He uses that to form uh, us as we follow and as we obey and as we do what the Lord wants us to do as a church body. Now, if you don't have a Bible, let me tell you that uh, I'd love to give you your first Bible, so just see me after the service, and I will, uh, we'll go and get you your copy of God's Word, and I'd love to give you your first Bible the way at Christmas time in 1984, Donald Barr gave me my first Bible, and uh, just uh, have never been the same. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3, as Eddie said, this is the last of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 that the Lord talks to, and in talking to them, talks to all of us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as you're turning there, I want to tell you about Edward Kimball. In the 1800s, there was a Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimball, and he became very burdened about the spiritual condition of an 18-year-old boy in his class. The youth had been in his class for almost a year, and he was coming to Sunday school because of an agreement that he had made with his uncle, uh, who employed him in his shoe shop. The uncle had said, "'Nephew, if you don't come to church and Sunday school with me, you don't have a job.'" And the nephew said, "'Well, I need a job. Mom and dad told me I need a job, so I guess I'll go with you to church and Sunday school.'" But as, so the uncle had felt that going to church might keep the young man out of trouble. But after a year of going, the young man had no intention of committing his life to Christ until he had had his fun and was much older. He said, someday maybe, but not now. I got too much of being the Lord of my own life that I want to do. And Jesus, I know, will have expectations on me if I follow him. So not going to do it. Um... So as Edward Kimball was praying for this young man, his heart grew increasingly concerned about this church-going but Christ-less young man. Would you like to hear how that turns out? I'll tell you later. Uh, But first, let me ask you a question. What sins are the most repugnant in God's eyes? Don't answer out loud. Just think in your heart for a minute and your mind for a minute. What sins are the most repugnant in God's eyes? Well, in these seven letters of Revelation so far, in chapters two and three, we've seen Jesus go over two sins in particular, two categories of sin that really uh, make him fighting mad, and that's idolatry, worshiping other gods, and immorality, taking the precious gift of sexuality and, and making it not about one man and one woman for life. And he was so upset about idolatry and immorality practiced in some of the churches by some of the members of some of the churches that we've already seen Jesus threatened to personally come and deal with those engaged in those sins. Uh, so that's pretty powerful right there. But today, we're going to find out about a sin that upsets Jesus so much he feels like vomiting. Wow! What an awful picture. I don't know about you, but whenever I'm around people that are throwing up, my own gag reflex makes me feel like throwing up too, you know? I mean, just, it's just nasty situation, right? Vomiting is one of the worst things you can picture in your mind. And yet Jesus in our passage is going to talk about a sin that upsets him so much, committed in churches, then and now, that uh, makes him feel like throwing up. Stark language indeed. But the good news in this passage is that even for the person engaged in this sin there's hope if you repent uh... repent is not a four letter word but hell is um, repent means to change your mind you know to turn to god's way of looking at things so you used to think you're okay without god if you truly repent you know you need god in your life you used to think that your sins were no big deal now you realize oh my gosh my sins are a big deal to a holy god Uh, especially the sin of unbelief and the sin of pride. You used to think that um, salvation would have to involve something you did for Christ or uh, kept doing for Christ. Now you know you receive salvation as a gift, just like you receive your Christmas gift as a gift. And it's so cool to think about how after the awful, one of the most stark and awful pictures that's in the Bible, Jesus wanting to vomit us out of his mouth... Becomes one of the most endearing and wonderful images in all of the Bible, uh, him coming to us and knocking on the door of our hearts. So we're in Revelation chapter 3, and we're going through verses 14 through 22. And to the angel or messenger of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning, or we could say the originator, the beginner of the creation of God. I know your works that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. to the churches the preferred temperature of the redeemed let's pray father I thank you so much for Revelation chapters 2 and 3 thank you for this section of letters to the churches then and now and thank you Jesus that you give personal words to your people and those who would be your people in these passages God thank you so much for the letter for today Lord God Lord, you truly want a people that you've redeemed to love you back, to be on fire for you and go out in your name the way you came to bring salvation in the first place. Lord God, forgive us for many times having a comfortable faith, a complacent faith, a me-centered and us-centered faith, rather than truly a God-centered and God-commissioned faith. Lord God, I pray that as we go through this text, it's this first Sunday in December, and we have a whole month where a very troubled country in the midst of a very troubled world will once again turn a little bit of attention toward Christmas. For many, all they'll hear about is Santa Claus, but Santa didn't die for anybody's sins. Lord God, I pray that during this month, we would remember that Jesus is the reason for the season and our faces would be glowing because we're worshiping you during this entire month and because we're glowing with a love for others to come to know you as well. Lord God, I pray that as we look at this text, you'll bless us, Lord God, and that you'll make us hot in our faith for you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. In each of these letters, we've talked about some things that were true in the city that the church was in, and we'll do that for Laodicea as well. Laodicea was 45 miles south of Philadelphia on the road to Colossae. You know of the book of Colossians. Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians. And so Colossians and Laodicea were actually very close to each other and kind of sister towns. Laodicea was founded by Antiochus II in the middle of the third century B.C. to honor his wife. Her name was Laodicea. And so Laodicea was to honor that dear wife of his. It had grown into a highly successful commercial and financial banking center. And so it was known for its banking system and the monies that were there and the wealth that it had. It also produced fine clothing and carpets made from the black wool of sheep raised in the area. It boasted theaters, a huge stadium, lavish public baths, and fabulous shopping centers. The wealth had overflowed into places of shopping and commerce where you could get just about anything that you wanted to. In the temple of Asclepios... That's the one with the snake, you know, uh, in Greek mythology, in Roman mythology. In the temple of Asclepios, there was a famous medical school known for producing a Phrygian powder famous for its cure of eye defects. And so people would come from other places to Laodicea to come to the temple of Asclepios there and to get a hold of this powder that could potentially make, improve their eyesight. And so they did that. As they did that, no doubt they'd shop in the shopping centers and those things as well. Now, we heard about how Philadelphia had been hit hard by an earthquake in AD 17. That same earthquake had really done great damage to Laodicea as well. But unlike Philadelphia that had to get the government's help to rebuild their city, Laodicea was proud of rebuilding with their own money with no help from the empire. Now, a couple more things about Laodicea before we move on. Seven miles north of... Laodicea laid Hierapolis, also mentioned in Colossians chapter 4. It was famous for its hot springs. A six-mile-long aqueduct brought the water into Laodicea, but by the time it went from hot springs place to Laodicea, it had gotten lukewarm. Just 10 miles away, Colossae was known for its cold springs. And so Laodicea was literally a city between a hot springs and a cold springs. Now, from Colossians chapter 4, uh, verses 12 through 16, we know that the churches in Colossae and Laodicea and Heropolis had a good relationship. They were ministry partners. So much so that in Colossians 4, Paul says, now listen, take this letter that I've sent to Colossae and exchange it with the one I wrote to Laodicea. I wish we knew what that one said, you know. Exchange the letters so that you read theirs and they read yours because it both gives instructions from an apostle of Jesus Christ and so in his letter to the colossians that the laodiceans would have been familiar with paul described himself as a as struggling so that the christians in those places would understand the treasure that they had in christ and never take him for granted and i took the time this morning to go ahead it took me about 10 minutes to read the book of colossians it's only 4 chapters it's parallel to Ephesians in the content sent to different places but some of the same great content and it's well worthy of worth you spending 10 minutes later today 15 minutes later today reading the book of Colossians those first four chapters because it exalts Christ and it talks about who we have in him as our redemption and the forgiveness that he's given us and it talks about then our responsibilities and relationships to God and to one another just beautiful stuff Now. It seems that Jesus has the same concern for the Colossians, uh, brethren, that he had in Laodicea uh, that we see in Revelation chapter 3, this letter that comes in and because he's, again, challenging them about whether their passion is still high for Jesus, just like he did in Colossians, to know the treasure that they had. Now, for a moment, picture the Bible as a firework show about Jesus. Last week we were in Chattanooga and uh, we got to go to the boat parade and at the end of that time there was a firework show. Everybody loves a firework show and seeing it bounce off the waters was kinda cool. Um, and, uh, but picture uh, of the Bible as a firework show about Jesus. Well, what comes at the end of a firework show? The grand finale, right? And so Jesus appears throughout the Bible I mean, Jesus uh, occurs early and often in the Bible, in the prophecies of the Old Testament, the actual coming of him in the uh, New Testament. He appears often throughout the Bible, but when we get to Revelation, we have an amazing portrait painted by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about this. The first three chapters of different books of the Bible, right? So in the first three chapters of Genesis, a name for Jesus appears once in 80 verses. In the first three chapters of the Psalms, a name for Jesus occurs once in 26 verses. In the first three chapters of Romans, a name for Jesus occurs an average of one out of every 13 verses, entitled in name of Jesus. In the first three chapters of Colossians that I just mentioned, a name for Jesus occurs an average of one out of every six verses in the first three chapters of john's gospel that wonderful gospel the gospel of john a name for jesus occurs an average of one out of every five verses here in the first three chapters of revelation a name for jesus occurs an average of one out of every three verses with over 25 names of jesus given just in chapter one two and three and that's why i said when we're going through revelation don't forget that it first says this is the unveiling of jesus christ and then it's about the events that will characterize the end times the book starts by rounding out our biblical portrait of Jesus giving us 25 names of Jesus and we are to incorporate them into our worship and our praying and so in verse 14 one more time he gives a name or two or three of Jesus and we find out that Jesus is our faithful and true creator he says these things says the amen The faithful witness, the true witness. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. When you say amen, you're saying it is true. Um, Amen means it is true. I agree with that. So when you say amen to something, you're saying, yeah, that's truth, and I, I, I want that to be part of my life. Jesus is the great amen. He's the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. He calls us to be witnesses for him. But he is the original witness in all he said and taught. And so he's the faithful and true witness. But here we're told that Jesus is the originator of God's creation. Now, here in the New King James Version, it says at the end of verse 14 that Jesus is the beginning of the creation of God. And so we want to be very careful here not to do what some do and say, oh, that must mean he's the first thing created. It, it, could, it doesn't mean that at all. It means he's the beginner. He's the one that originated all that was begun, all that was created. Uh, he is not the first one created. He's the creator of all things. So when those Laodiceans, they already knew this because they'd gotten that letter from Colossae, and they had read about uh, this about Jesus in Colossians chapter 1. Verses 16 through 18, it says, By Jesus, by him, everything was created in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. Do you know what Christ was reminding the church in Laodicea of and us in verse 14? He was saying, you're only alive because of me. You're only here because of me. You've only got breath because of me. That book of Colossians says that uh, he created all things, and it says, in him all things hold together. If he stopped holding us together, our atoms would just drop before us into a puddle. And uh, he could do that. And as we look at the end of Revelation, when he returns and the enemies of God are lined up against him, that may very well be what he does. Just say the word, and all of a sudden, their bodies fall apart. We're only alive because of Jesus. He's our creator. He's the source of all of our blessings. Everything we have is ultimately a gift from him. Do not take him for granted. Of course, we thought about that for Thanksgiving time, right? To be thankful and count your blessings, to name them one by one. But uh, we want to live with an attitude of gratitude all year long, grateful for who he is, for what he does, and how he is God. Let me ask you a question. Do you take time each week to thank Jesus for creating this world? and creating you he's the source of everything that really matters in your life and he should be thanked often for creating and sustaining you and the world do you take that time Uh, you know one of the problems with modern man is you know we live we're indoors way too much right so we don't take walks uh... we are experiencing uh... overload of information from tvs and smartphones and internet and all the different things And it is sometimes good just to shut all that down. In fact, if you don't practice a sabbatical sometime during the week from your technology, uh, then you're just gonna be frazzled all the time. There are serious mental health issues with just 24-7 access through the phone to you and that sort of thing. So find a time. And if you say, well, Danny, I haven't done that in several years, ever since the thing started, I've never put it down. Well, start by taking an hour away, then two hours, then three hours, then all day Friday or Saturday or something. Get it away from influencing you during that time so that you can just take the time to have that mini sabbatical, that time of reset, rest, and refreshment where you can say, Lord Jesus, thank you for creating everything here that I'm seeing as I walk around. And thank you for creating me. Thank you for your blessings in my life, my health, my health challenges, my relationships, my relationship challenges, all those different things. I recognize that you're the giver and you can be the one who takes away at any point. You give and you take away. Blessed be your name anyway. Submitting yourself to him humbling yourself before him he says I can work in the kind of person who humbles themselves before me pride's the enemy of your faith and I can work with the kind of person I can bless the kind of person I can dwell with the kind of person who trembles at my word and it's hard to tremble at his word when you're so distracted all the time through these other things he's the faithful and true creator Well, that's so serious that as chapter four starts, the next time we look into Revelation, we're going to see chapter four says that in heaven, he's constantly praised for being the creator of all things. So if you want to get in on what you'll be talking about forever, celebrating creation and enjoying it, uh, you know, I love the Presbyterian Westminster Confession of Faith. It starts with the question, what is the chief end of man? And it says to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so get in on that now while you can. I agree with that statement. Well, here we come to the sin that makes Jesus want to throw up, and it's lukewarmness, verses 15 through 17. Let's read that again. I know your works that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So no commendation. He doesn't have any attaboy for this church. Every every time he's could in churches, he's told them what he celebrates about them. There's nothing to celebrate for this bunch. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say I'm rich. You've become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I pity the person in this room or watching online, and you think one thing about your relationship with God, and heaven's testifying something different. You testify, I'm all right, I'm okay. I walked that aisle when I was a little boy, I, I give to the church some, you know, I'm a good person. I always get real skeptical when somebody tells me they're a good person. Because the reality is we're sinners before holy God. Out here there's only two kinds of people and watching online there's only two kinds of people. You're either a sinner saved by grace or you're a sinner that's still under the wrath of God because you still haven't turned to Christ. And this talk of being a good person when the scripture says that you're uh, wretched, poor, miserable and blind and naked. Uh, you want to have the same assessment about who you are before a holy God that the scripture has. Every once in a while, I'll get to the coffee pot too late, and I'll take the sip of the coffee I pour. Don't you hate when that happens? It's ha- I have actually had it happen where I thought the coffee was going to be warm, and it wasn't. And I've done this very thing, just spit it out, you know. And, of course, you've got to clean it up, but that's a different story. But but that's happened to me, and maybe it's happened to you too. Maybe you were able to hold it in, but, you know, you thought, oh, this is not what I expected. I expected something that was hot, and it was uh, lukewarm instead. It's an annoyance in coffee drinking, but lukewarm in your relationship to Christ is actually an insult to Jesus. You've got one quote in your notes, but I want to give you another one. This is from Adrian Rogers, the great Adrian Rogers. He said, lukewarmness is not weakness, it's wickedness. It's not a small sin, it's a great sin. If the greatest commandment in the Bible is to love God with all your heart, then the greatest sin is not to do so. Do you see your complacency, your compromise in your faith as wickedness? Or do you see it as, I'm just a good old boy, I'm a good old girl, that uh, is better than most of the people i know and i'm pretty happy with my station in life and i know there's things in the bible that i'm supposed to do and i don't do them but i'll stick with what i want to do instead let me just pause here for one moment i love the fact that some of you took your phones out you knew that quote wasn't in your note i like that quote and you took that picture there and there might have been a time when preachers said don't do that but let me tell you what we've got a world to influence out there don't we So if you see something like that and it's not in the notes, take the picture of it, post it online, uh, share what you're learning with the world, and God will use that. The second quote you do have in your notes, lukewarmness is the greatest form of blasphemy, G. Campbell Morgan said. The greatest form of blasphemy? Are you kidding me? Greater blasphemy is being lukewarm than uh, not professing Christ at all? Well, it does appear that that's what Jesus is saying here. Note that the lukewarmness that Jesus despises is contrasted with hot and cold. So let's take a moment and do that. A believer who is hot is on fire for Jesus. She loves Jesus and spends time in personal devotion. He can't wait for the next time to be around his Christian friends in Bible study. She considers it a high honor to give financially to advance Christ's work. He would rather die than compromise his testimony. She sings with a heart full of gratitude and praise. He thinks nothing of stopping uh, what he's doing to meet oppressing needs. She loves to share her testimony. He hopes for an open door to share the gospel with others. Their hearts well up with gratitude for all Jesus has done as their creator and as their redeemer. So I said Revelation 4, Jesus constantly praised in heaven for being the creator. In chapter 5, we'll see he's constantly praised in heaven for being the redeemer. Creation and redemption, appreciation of both those things should constantly be our themes. And a person on fire with the Lord is, is just so full of gratitude, full of fire of faith, full of knowing that God can change their situation in an instant, can win that friend to Christ they've been praying for and they're so excited in their faith they, nothing means more to them than that relationship with Christ I think of John Stam and his wife Betty they were missionaries in China who were actually killed for the faith they were martyred in 1934 he was 27 years old she was 28 years old their tragic deaths uh, motivated many that heard their story to say yeah I'll go they, had, they died, but I'll take their place. I'll go somewhere else for the Lord. And, and, and that happens throughout uh, time. One of the things that's amazing is that as people have been killed for the faith, others have stepped forward and said, yeah, I'll, I'll take their place. I'll sign up. And John and Betty Stamm were two of those missionaries. Listen to this quote by John Stamm. Take away everything I have, but do not take away the sweetness of walking and talking with the King of Glory. And if you go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, before the fall of man, the great privilege that Adam and Eve had apparently were daily walks with the Lord there in the garden. The great hymn says, and he walks with me and he talks with me, right? Spending that time with the Lord, no greater honor And John Stam said, listen, as much as I want to win people to Jesus, my, one thing I don't want you to take away from me is the sweetness of that relationship with the King of glory. Now, l- look at that quote again. and ask yourself the question could that quote have my name at the end of it is that how honestly how I feel before God you could take everything else I have but don't take away my relationship with Jesus and the sweet time I have communion with you and some of you just immediately said yes. And let me ask you this. If you said yes, does it show up sometime during each day in time praising him and spending time with him? Does it show up in your commitments? I mean, would that, sh- would that quote really be born out and lived out in your life? Well, that's a believer who's hot for Jesus. But then he talks about those who are cold, hot or cold. A person who is cold is dead spiritually, they're not a Christian at all and they're not pretending to be they would never acknowledge Christ as the source of blessing because they don't think he is they don't think he's real might as well talk about the Easter Bunny as talking about Jesus to this person they believe they can get by in life quite well without him their only good quality is that they're honest enough to say squarely I I don't really believe in Jesus many of those same people would say I believe most churchgoers are hypocrites anyway Uh, DC Talk used to have the song right and it had a line in there that said the greatest obstacle for people coming to faith around the world often is professing Christians. And as a non-believing atheist, 17-year-old back in Charlotte, North Carolina, I looked at people that went to church that were doing the same things I was doing, judging me because I didn't match up to their churchy standards. And uh, I, I, I looked on and said, why would I want what you have? You're doing the same things I'm doing. Um, and it's not that I feel, felt great, I didn't, I felt lost. I felt like I needed purpose and peace in life and, and where was joy and uh, all those things. But uh, I didn't want to be told that a, a church and Jesus made all the difference from people that he didn't appear to make much difference in their lives. So many times these same people, these cold ones, would say, I I believe most churchgoers are hypocrites anyway. And if that's you this morning, let me show you something in verse 15. See, verse 15, it says, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So if I read this right, Jesus actually prefers someone who's thought a little bit about it and has a cold response uh, to those that are lukewarm, the next category we'll look at. Hmm, isn't that interesting? Jesus actually commends the honest atheist here for uh, not being a pretender. He doesn't like pretending, right? He doesn't like charades. Now, unfortunately for you, Mr. Coldheart, if you don't repent, you'll still go to hell when you die. Because you're a sinner who needs Christ in your life, and God is right to judge your sins. And Jesus loves you so much, he came and took the burden of sin debt on himself that you owe before God. And that's why John 3.36 is so crucial to know. It says, the one who believes has life, but the one who does not believe will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains or abides on him or her. And so, unfortunately for you, if you don't repent, you'll still go to hell when you die. And, And here's even worse news for you. You'll probably be joined there by the majority of those who are very lukewarm. The very ones you said you don't like may be with you forever in hell because they were pretending and didn't really know. And so how awful would that be? You're smug now and thinking Christians are wrong and you haven't really evaluated the evidence, you just don't like Christians, you see, and your response has been cold and you'll spend eternity lost with many of those who were lukewarm. So who are the lukewarm? The lukewarm are churchgoers, but not Christ lovers. Churchgoers, but not Christ lovers. I love the ministry of the great George Whitfield, who preached an awakening in America and in England. He had a friend in England named William Grimshaw, an Anglican preacher that did a tremendous job back in that day. He had such a warm heart for Jesus. With his own money, he built a Methodist chapel in his parish because he thought there was a greater likelihood the Methodists would continue preaching the gospel after his death than his own Anglican brethren would. William Grimshaw was a man of God. He preached the word. One time, Whitfield came to Grimshaw's parish church there and began to preach. And, Grimshaw and, and uh, um, George Whitfield got up and he said, Now, I know that week after week you get from William Grimshaw some of the greatest preaching there is. So I know that most of you are saved. And Grimshaw got out of his chair, came up, and pushed the great Whitfield aside and said to the crowd... Said to Whitfield before the crowd, Do not say that to them. I fear the vast majority of them are lost and going to hell because they're trusting in themselves rather than the righteousness of Christ. And Whitfield said, Whew, got up and preached the gospel, and many were saved that day. There's no good to being a churchgoer if you're not a Christ lover, if you're not born again. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. So you're going to your left there to the letters of Paul. And these words are particularly applicable for the days we live in, the, these last days. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. The apostle writes, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Do these feel like perilous times? <laughs> So many things we thought we could take for granted in the past can no longer take for granted. So many uh, concerns about uh, pestilences and economic things and all, all the authoritarian overreach and stuff like that. Know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. Boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power and from such people turn away the lukewarm. Did you catch that? There's a form of religion there but there's no power and I say respectfully that for some in this room your faith is not a hot faith it's not a cold faith you you know you're not an atheist you do believe but you have a lukewarm faith you are a church goer but not a Christ lover and uh, boy that is a terrible place to be in because the reality might be uh, that you think you know the Lord and do not and again I'm all about helping people get assurance of salvation And I, with all my heart, believe in eternal security, that salvation happens at a moment in time. And once you're born again, you can't lose that. But there is such a thing as being a professor of faith without being a possessor of faith. Verse 17 shows us the big problem with the lukewarm. It's self-deception. He says, you say I'm rich. Well, they're not rich. They're poor. You've become wealthy. No, no, you're not. uh, I have need of nothing. Nothing. But he says, no, what you really are is wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The the lukewarm churchgoer thinks they have it all together. They don't understand their great need before God. They're self-righteous and self-sufficient. They don't think they really need God or others. Full of pride as they judge others who are not good Christians like they are, whatever that means, being a good Christian, right? There's only one good Christian, Jesus Christ himself. The rest of us are humble followers of him. Uh, and we know that apart from him, we can do nothing. That uh, it's going to take his spirit moving through us to do anything good and pleasing in his sight and that will last forever. According to Jesus' assessment in verse 17, they're as lost as a white goose in a snowstorm. Think about that. <laughs> Their real spiritual condition is poor, blind, and naked. They think they're God's gift to the churches, they act like owners of, but Jesus says, You make me want to vomit. Mm. sobering words from our creator and redeemer. Well, in verses 18, 19, we get the antidote for lukewarmness. He says, I counsel you to buy from me, interesting language there, buy from me, gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chase and therefore be zealous and repent. He uses this word Buy. And we think of acquiring, right? And he wants them to acquire what they really need rather than what they think they can rely on that they have already. He wants them to buy some things from me. So he says to these church-going but Christless people, you're poor spiritually until I make you rich. You're blind spiritually until you let me open your eyes. You're naked before God until you let me clothe you. It sounds a lot like John chapter three, doesn't it? When Nicodemus, the religious man, comes to Jesus and tries to say, hey, uh, let's come up with some sort of religious uh, partnership here because I'm for you, Jesus. We just need to work on your presentation some. And Jesus looks at him and said, unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. And so he told this religious man about his need of true faith in the one standing before him, Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me that not so much at the tabernacle, but at many uh, churches in our community... And around the country, uh, there are professing Christians who say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm just not that born-again kind. You know, I'm religious, but I'm not crazy about it, you know, and that sort of thing. Well, Jesus is the one that said, unless you're born again, you're not going to heaven, right? So in the eyes of Jesus, there's only being born again as being a real Christian. And then there are those that are false professors, those who think they are and are not. And unfortunately, I talk to people all the time, you do too, who say, yes, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, and then go on to say, but I also, and then they say, "I," and they talk about a sin the Bible condemns, and they say, I feel comfortable doing that thing. That's not a real Christian. It's not a consistent Christian. You can be forgiven of any sin, but you can't be forgiven of sin you don't repent of. Because repentance is predicated by the word confession, and the word confession means to say the same thing about. So if you don't say the same thing about your sin as God does, you and he are not on the same page, and you're self-deceived, and you're deceiving others. If we confess, if we say the same thing about our sin as God's word does, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness but we cannot be forgiven if we don't confess and repent of that which should not be part of our lives God can do anything through an honest struggler who agrees with God's word and just struggles many Christians struggle but what you can't do is defiantly say I can be a Christian and do these things the Bible calls sin without feeling bad about it that does not compute scripturally what's the antidote for being lukewarm you have to acknowledge Your sinfulness and other lack of righteousness before God. Then you repent of having a faith that makes true dependence on Christ optional. And you need to seek God as a deer pants for water like Psalm 42 talks about. You know, it's interesting. Why does he use this by language with them? They were bankers. They were those who had resources. And so he is trying to connect with them. He's trying to speak to them in a language they understand. And so he comes to them and says, you spend all your time trying to buy certain things. You've come to Laodicea trying to acquire certain things. And now I'm telling to you about what you really need to acquire or else you won't be right in heaven's eyes. They understood this language. They spent all their time seeking to acquire material things and medical answers. And some of you do too. And thank God for things that help us in the right context live our lives. And thank God for medical advances that can be used as part of what God wants to do to keep us here a little bit longer. But they can't turn into idolatry. The things of the Creator can't turn into what the basis of our faith is. They spend all their time to, uh, trying to acquire material things and medical answers and no time trying to acquire Jesus. And he's telling them what they really need to acquire is him through turning to him in repentance and faith. I like the way John Piper says it. This is another quote you want to take a picture of. My hope as a desperate sinner who lives in a desert of unrighteousness hangs on this biblical truth. That God is the kind of God who will be pleased with the one thing I have to offer, my thirst. God is is delighted not by the resources of bucket brigades, but by the bending down of broken sinners to drink at the fountain of grace. If you really want to have everything Jesus can be for you, you need to sell off, so to speak, what doesn't matter and buy what really does. You need to finally buy Jesus. Acquire Jesus, acquire all that he has for you in his word as you look into it and the Holy Spirit starts changing your life and building it, rebuilding it around God's truth. The tremendous news in verse 19, Jesus still loves the lukewarm. By this time, those that were there hearing this for the first time and many today were thinking, oh, oh no, this has me dead to rights. I'm lukewarm. I'm not hot. I'm not cold. I'm lukewarm. So, so, so. You need to see verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Jesus is saying, I'm telling you this because I love you and I want God's best for you. I want eternal life for you, not eternal death. So as many as I love, I rebuke, I tell the truth to. Thank God he's telling us the truth and I chasten. So be zealous and repent. You've been lukewarm, now get some zeal, right? Get some zeal. Uh, uh, Turn to the only place that you can find eternal life in Jesus and throw yourself down at the mercy of the heavenly court and buy Christ. I kind of think that's what he has in mind in Matthew 13 when he says, this is such a treasure that it's worth selling everything you got to go and buy the field the treasure's in so that you can have that treasure forever. Worth letting go so we can gain. I've told some of you before, some of you haven't heard it though, about there's a monkey in Africa that they actually catch because the banana's inside a trap. And he puts his hand in there to grab the banana. But when his hand is around the banana, his wrist expands and he can't get it back out of the trap. And you know what? He won't let it go. He's trapped, but he won't let it go. So he just holds on. And the one that's trapped him comes and has him. And captures him and eats him, right? The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus says, I've come that they might have life and might have it eternally. Let go of what won't benefit you in the long term and pursue Jesus Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that leads us to the great invitation of verse 20. Robert Murray McChain called this the most touching passage in the Bible. And we might argue John 3.16 is right there as well. But when you think about John 3.16 and Revelation 3.20, how powerful is it what is said in verse 20? Jesus says, picture me, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. If you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, you're watching online, Christ is standing at the door of your heart and knocking. He has come to you. He's run to you. He's done everything it would take to give you eternal life. And he has come to you. You know, it's very interesting. There's artists in the past that have drawn a picture of jesus in the garden knocking on a door he's usually holding a lantern and there he is knocking on the door right and there's always something missing from the outside of that door when artists do that rendering what's missing from the outside of the door the doorknob now jesus is the creator he's the lord if he wanted to he could kick the door down and come in he's got that right he has all the rights on your life but he's also a gentleman god And so he says, I've done what it took to save you. It is finished was my cry from the cross. Everything it would took. In the Greek, that meant paid in full. Vendors would put it on a bill of sale that this is good now. And if you've put your faith and trust in Christ, it's good now between you and God if you turn to him. Your sin put on him at the cross, dealt with forever, his righteousness counting for you on the day of judgment. But you've got to open the door of your heart and you need to invite him in. You need to invite him in. In a few minutes, I'll say a sinner's prayer and give you the opportunity if you've never received Christ before to invite Christ to come into your life. But picture Jesus, what an endearing image. There he is knocking on the door of your heart and he's a gentleman. So you're the one that's gonna need to respond to activate that eternal life in your life. If not then rightfully so your sins won't get dealt with at the cross they'll get dealt with at the great white throne judgment of God and then you'll rightfully spend eternity in the lake of fire with all those who reject Jesus whether they were cold or lukewarm now if you're a professing Christian here this morning pierced by the thought of your own putrid lukewarmness Christ's invitation is for you too Here are the two enduring images I want to leave you with from chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Revelation. The first one is the strong Christ of chapter 1, almighty God in all of his splendor. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's everywhere present. He is holy, holy, holy. The entire earth is filled with his glory as creator. It's marred by sin, but we still see the images of glory behind the taintedness with sin. But the second image is this from Revelation 3.20. That same awesome God coming to your door to meet you. The reality is this is a good verse for evangelism. But that's secondary. Secondary is when you've, uh, you know... Secondary is using this to let non-Christians know they can come to Christ. The original context is Jesus coming to his church and saying, hey, tabernacle, can I come in? Hey, Sunday school class, can I come in? Hey, ministry, can I come in? Hey, family within the tabernacle, household, single person, couple, family of whatever size, can I come into your house and spend some time with you this December, this Christmas time? Or do I remain on the outside looking in because you're lukewarm and you got your own plans and there's not room for the King of Glory to come in? What a passage for all of us to consider and think about. Psalm 42, 1 and 2 says, As a deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. And may that be true of us as individuals and as a church family this Christmas time. As you seek Christ, don't forget the three main commands given to the churches in these two chapters of letters. He told us over and over again, we've got to remember. Remember the good news of grace you received and heard. He told us over and over again, we need to repent, we need to change our mind, or change our mind again back to what we remember. Do the things you did when your faith was new. We need to listen to what the Spirit is saying to us now and act on it. And when we do, God the Holy Spirit will keep knocking on your heart and he'll say, I've got another matter I want to talk to you about. God is very good. The the initial thing everyone needs to do is, is receive him as Savior and Lord and follow him. But not too long after that, you're going to hear the Lord's knock again. And he's going to say, I'm going to talk to you about something like giving. I'm going to talk to you about something about being faithful in church attendance. Discovering what your gift is and using it to bless the body of Christ somehow and the soft responsive heart that trembles at his word will always say here i am lord here i am i've already said yes to you so i won't say no if it's truly from you i'll say yes you've got my forever yes that's what a hot heart does i told you earlier about such a man the burden of a sunday school teacher named edward kimball the burden he felt for a young man in his class who was church-going but clearly lukewarm about Jesus, maybe even cold. Kimball went to visit the young man in the shoe shop that he worked at and found him at the back of the shop, wrapping up shoes and stacking them on the shelves, and he challenged him there about his relationship with the Lord. Here's how Kimball later put it. He said, It seemed that the young man was just ready for the light that broke upon him, for there at once in the back of that shoe store in Boston, 18-year-old, D.L. Moody gave himself and his life to Christ and D.L. Moody went on to have a huge impact on the world one of his favorite quotes was D.L. Moody used to say the world has yet to see what can happen through a man through a woman that is burning brightly for God at all times by God's grace I'll be that man and I think that quote actually goes to he had heard that before and then passed it along but it still is relevant today Who knows how much can happen through you or through me or through us as we burn for Jesus and that fire spreads throughout this community and throughout this world. Who knows the impact that will make? Won't you bow your heads?
0: Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today.